This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... There really is a disjuncture between democracy and technology, big tech of this kind. These new tools and new opportunities to communicate globally are going to solve all of our problems of democracy, human rights and development. Well, we woke up a bit, didn't we? Originally, the hope of the social media was, in a sense, protest against governments. And now we're asking the governments to regulate the private companies. Nobody has an absolute right to free speech. If you're inciting violence and hatred, you certainly don't. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. In today's program, as you might have guessed from some of those sound bites there, we're going to discuss big tech, social media, the power of both, and the consequences for human rights and for democracy. We've got a great panel today to discuss this. Shalini Randeria, she's director of the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy here at Geneva's Graduate Institute. Scott Campbell, senior human rights officer. He leads the United Nations Human Rights Office's work on technology and human rights. And of course, as ever, our resident analyst and devil's advocate, Daniel Warner. To get started, here's a recent example of what some of those concerns about the power of big tech might be. Facebook unfriends Australia. The social networking giant blocks access to news media on its site in a row over paying for content. This is Australia. Australian leader Scott Morrison vowed to push ahead with laws to force Facebook to pay news outlets for content on Friday. So... We can quibble all we like about whether Australia's proposed law on Facebook and asking it to pay for news was flawed or not. Many have said it was. But nevertheless, that overnight pull by Facebook of news on all its sites and public information on all Facebook sites in, in Australia is kind of, I think, a bit sobering about how much power these companies have. Now, Shalini Randeria, you are director of the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy here at Geneva's Graduate Institute. Um, a shout out, actually, I wanted to say, because you've got your own podcast called Democracy in Question, if anybody's really deeply into this topic. When I was talking to you before we actually came on here, Shalini, you said some of these problems of enormous power to act swiftly and and change the way we actually get information could have been foreseen right from from the start. Do you explain a bit more what you meant by that? Um, I think one of the issues which is being discussed uh, uh, these days is uh, whether these big giant corporations should be regulating content. But I think the much earlier question that should have been asked and actually could have been regulated is monopoly power. And since most of them are based in Silicon Valley, one could have used the U.S. antitrust laws in order to both prevent this kind of concentration of power and regulate it. So I think the real opportunity to do it was missed, partly because 
I think at the time when they were set up, they were very small um, enterprises. People just didn't realize the kind of concentration of power uh, that would be in their hands and the kind of money that data itself, mining our personal data, will be able to generate. So this was somehow in a future realm, which people didn't quite uh, imagine. And I think then when it got to the point where people did begin to realize the monopoly uh, power of these corporations and the way in which they were not only manipulating uh, voter preferences, but also skewing election results, but were also um, uh, contravening privacy laws. By that time, the the corporation was so powerful that they were able to lobby in Washington, D.C. against the use of antitrust laws. So I think that in a nutshell would be the story we need to look at very carefully. Well, people are talking about that now. I'm going to play you one other little bit of sound before I come to Scott Campbell of UN Human Rights. This is um, sci-fi author William Gibson way back in 1997 trying to predict how the internet might change our lives. Let's have a listen to that. The digitalization of media will will change. I think the most important difference with the internet and the World Wide Web is that they're not top-down hierarchical structures on the order of broadcast television. So we're starting to deal, we're dealing with entirely new media here. Okay, so he says not top down, but what we've seen now, 20, maybe a quarter of a century later almost, is something rather different, enormous power. Scott, I'm going to come to you. Did you foresee this coming? I mean, let's think even 10 years ago in the Arab Spring, we were celebrating the way that protesters could share information and get round a rather state-controlled media. Well, I think I think that's right. And I would just second, I think, the, the good points by, by Shalini. I think there was a lot of initial euphoria in Arab Spring and seeing the very real power that internet platforms, social media were bringing to human rights and pro-democracy movements. And I think it's it's important to, to note that that is still there. It's, it's such an important tool today, social media, for example, for marginalized groups, for human rights defenders, for journalists, for anyone with a, a dissenting view, there's really you know, unprecedented access to connect with people, information, and to raise voices and to advocate. I mean, that was sort of the message coming out of right Arab Spring, right? This is, this is these new tools and new opportunities to communicate globally are going to solve all of our problems of democracy, human rights, and development. Well, we woke up a bit. Um, didn't we? And I think in you know 2016, of course, and with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, I think that was a one of the first major wake-up calls, not the only one. But they said, wait a minute, um, if we're not careful with how our data is being manipulated by these these untethered giants, it can have profound negative impact on democracy. And then a couple of years later, we saw what happened in in Myanmar and how you know facebook was was misused with you know horrible impact on on the human rights situation in in Myanmar we're going to come to to Myanmar and in fact other areas where social media has been misused um but danny i saw you you have your hand up no i mean there's a paradox here in what shalini said and scott also i mean on the one hand we're complaining about private monopoly but originally, the hope of the social media 
was in a sense protest against governments. And now we're asking the governments to regulate the private companies. So we're really here in a tension between the private and the public. On the one hand, we were happy to have a kind of global community. And now we don't want the companies to dominate. We want the states, which could be authoritarian, now to regulate the companies. Yeah, it's a very difficult one. I mean, I think, um, was it you, Shalini, earlier, you were saying um, that it's it's interesting that it's the authoritarian states that are seeming to be to be most active with this. I did actually want to bring in also at this point, Mark Zuckerberg himself, because he tends to evade, doesn't he, uh, the question of control. He doesn't particularly want to address it. He wants to say that he's improving it himself. Here's him talking just last year. When I started Facebook, it was built around a few simple ideas. People want to share and stay connected with their friends and the people around them. When people have control over what they share, they're comfortable sharing more. When people share more, the world becomes more open and connected. And in a more open world, many of the biggest problems we face together will become easier to solve. A lot has changed on Facebook since then, but these core principles remain true today. He's still assuring everyone there that Facebook and these other platforms are actually a force for good, but the control is still very much in, in, in a few hands. Who wants to come in there? Shall he need, Scott? So maybe... Two quick uh, points. One directly uh, to Dan. Yes, there is a a contradiction, if you like, between wanting, on the one hand, to have governments come in. The question is, which kinds of governments? So, of course, you do not want authoritarian governments to come in and control um, uh, corporations, which is what they've also been doing. Don't forget, there has been quite a tie-in between these corporations and many authoritarian governments. But in the 2016 election, and that's sort of one step in the chronology Scott was telling us the story from, from Cambridge Analytica to Minbar, don't forget Trump's 2016 election, when these giant corporations were part of the so-called Alamo Project. They were sitting there with the Republican Party's advertising machinery, uh, putting out to millions and millions of American voters all kinds of information which would uh, skew their uh, preferences, some of it uh, true, some of it uh, false, and tailoring very different kinds of messages and kinds of micro-targeting, which we have seen, which is possible when you aggregate this kind of data. So uh, we've seen that whole trajectory, and you are right. I think we cannot say all governments should be given the chance to do this kind of uh, regulation because at the moment in Poland, the law which is on the anvil is, uh, as I was just uh, saying to you, Imogen, it's a reversal of roles. The Polish government now is crying for free speech. And what it means is that corporations should not be allowed to debar accounts of ultra-right-wing groups or certain individuals whom they consider to be problematic. So this is part of the controversy which emerged when Trump was debarred from Twitter. And the question is, is this against the First Amendment? And I would say no. Nobody has an absolute right to free speech. If you're inciting violence and hatred, and we can come to the Myanmar case um, uh, with Scott immediately, you certainly don't. I definitely want to bring Scott Campbell 
in here because you talked about the really, really sophisticated kind of targeting that was done on social media in the US 2016 election. Things have moved on in the US since then, and we will come to that a bit later in the program. But Scott, you referred to it just a few minutes ago. There have been places, Myanmar would be one, where the media, and in this case, social media, is a very blunt instrument, incredibly widespread, incredibly rapid reaching people. And it is being or has been used basically to incite real hatred and real violence. Well, that's that's right. And I think Daniel's very good point about you know the role of, of states in, in regulating and in preventing that violence and the role of companies is crucial here. And it's, and I, I draw attention to, to both. And I, I recognize in the paradox, apparent paradox that he talks to. And I guess what I would emphasize is just that we need really to ask much more of both states and companies to step up to the challenges of making sure that indeed the internet is a place that's safe, a bastion of freedom of expression, of freedom of association. And to do that, States, the good and the bad, I mean, they do have guideposts. They have international human rights obligations that the vast majority of governments around the world have have voluntarily signed up to. They have obligations to make sure that there are guardrails, there's regulations, there are, are rules in place to make sure that social media companies are not having adverse impact on, on human rights situations. The companies have their parts to do in parallel. The companies also have a responsibility to respect rights under UN guiding principles designed for business. So they also need to step up and make sure that their rules are in line, their policies, their rules, their terms of service are in line with international human rights norms and that we're respecting the right to privacy, are respecting the right to freedom of expression. So in short, I mean, we, we need to ask both to really step up and, and make sure that they're doing all they can to try to prevent catastrophes like what we, what we saw in, in Myanmar. So just a reminder, Facebook has actually in the last few weeks banned Myanmar's military, the Tatmadaw, from its platforms. If we take a listen to Facebook's Director of Public Policy, Raphael Frankel, here, though, the reasons he gives, all of these things have actually been happening for quite some time, certainly since some, since 2017. Today, we have banned the remaining Myanmar military, also known as the Tatmadaw, and military-controlled state and media entities from Facebook and Instagram. We've also banned ads from military-linked commercial entities. For years, Myanmar's military has waged a very sophisticated communications campaign, weaponizing various social media platforms and using them to incite and glorify violence. Many people will say, Scott, this is very late in the day. And you say they need to understand their obligations um, under international law and human rights law. I mean, seriously, Facebook and Twitter? How much dialogue do you have with them? Um, uh, uh, An increasing and and uh, growing amount very rapidly this is it, it this is a new space I should be you know very candid for uh, for the UN and for other parts I think of the of the human rights movement. I think a couple of years ago, to be frank, it would be difficult for you know a, a major social media company, a Twitter, a Google, a Facebook um, to to respond to a phone call. You know, from from the UN Human Rights Office. Um, today, we're we're on, on on the phone and email with the major companies on on a daily basis, in intense conversations with them on their responsibilities, on their policies, 
They're engaging with us to try to modify those policies. Um, they're making structural changing changes fairly rapidly um, and stepping up by creating human rights teams within the organizations. All that, of course, is because they're under, and rightly so, under intense public pressure, pressure from their own employees, pressure from regulators who, are, who realize they have to step in here, and pressure from the human rights movement. So it's, it's very dynamic um, space. It's moving quickly. It's certainly none too late also for the giants to be moving in this, uh, in this direction. And we're certainly pushing them as hard as we can to move quickly. Danny, you wanted to come well, I mean, in just there? a practical point, first of all. I mean, Facebook apparently has 15,000 people to screen. How many people would they really need in order to do the job? Uh, it seems to me that it will be many more people than that. And secondly, it's a question of objectivity. Was Donald Trump's speech on January 6th an incitement, or was it a metaphor, or was it something else? And we, if you listen to the impeachment trial, there were all kinds of opinions about that speech. So I think even if you have a certain content can be simply said, yes, that's an incitement, that's hate. But there are other things which are open to interpretation, which I think is extremely complicated as far as freedom is concerned. Well, you mentioned uh, Donald Trump's speech. Let's, I think we should hear a little bit of it. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. I mean, we can debate till the cows come home, uh, whether it was incitement or not. I don't think there's much debate about the fact that uh, politicians who are on social media recognize very clearly its value. I mean, the fact that Donald Trump has personally petitioned to get his platforms back on Facebook tells you something. Shalini, you are nodding there. Well, it's a complicated story, I think. Danny's right that uh, the, sometimes the lines can be very fuzzy. So if, uh, as long as the line is very clear, somebody's uh, inciting to violence or hatred or um, incitement to lawlessness, um, and we, the Myanmar case, I think, is a very clear one of the uh, regime mobilizing for ethnic cleansing. In Trump's case, it is open to some interpretation, although uh, in Trump's case, I think the problem is not so much, in my view, uh, I think there was a clear incitement to violence. I think he's not given to using very metaphorical language. Usually he's not very subtle in his use of language, but he was inciting as much on television as on Twitter. So actually, I don't think a Twitter ban would have entirely prevented what happened on Capitol Hill because we would have had to actually ban him uh, from uh, TV, which I think would have been a major problem when he was sitting president in any case. But I think the more important question here is to see how skewed this whole question of the freedom of expression and the First Amendment, at least in the US, is. Because when all the libertarian uh, pronouncements on First Amendment come, they are actually protecting the rights of corporations and they want to protect the rights of political donors. But they talk very little about the rights of political dissidents or whistleblowers. So it's, uh, it's, you know, so it's not as if everyone is equal in their First Amendment rights. So take, for example, just the recent case of Black Lives Matters, journalists who were silenced, treated extremely badly, and protesters also when it came to Black Lives Matters, uh, journalists who were even arrested during those protests for reporting, whereas this never happened when it comes to those who were uh, hooting for Trump. So listening to that, I'm wondering, are we coming to the conclusion that regulating big tech is too tough for the private sector? 
And at the same time, we can't trust national governments in case they just do that to further their own power. Is there a bigger role for the United Nations? We know it's on the UN agenda. Here's um, Secretary General Antonio Guterres in 2019 warning about the spread of hatred and intolerance via what he called new vectors of venom. Intolerance is a multi-headed monster. In recent months alone and in different parts of the world, beyond the attacks on synagogues, we have seen massacres at mosques and bombings at churches. Refugees and migrants continue to face hostility. White supremacists and neo-Nazis are emboldened by elections showing the appeal of their racist messages. And in today's digital realm, we have new vectors of venom, algorithms that accelerate the spread of bigotry, and new platforms where far-flung extremists can find each other and spur each other on. The United Nations fights these ills as a matter of our very identity, founded as we were in response to the genocide. Scott, you were saying that you have dialogue with these big companies. I mean, the UN has started to talk very publicly. It must be awkward, though, for the UN to try to develop a a real this is exactly what we we think should happen policy on this. I mean, it's a bit of a minefield, isn't it? It's a very tricky minefield indeed. And I think Shalini points to some of that in, in Daniel's question as well. It's a very tricky space to regulate as, as soon as we're trying to regulate content, specific content, and what is hate speech, it's very easy to see authoritarian regimes defining any type of criticism as hate speech, and we've seen this in in a number of a number of states over the last the last few years. What the UN, um, I think, can bring, and where we would point to in response to your question, is towards international human rights law. There are laws that are out there that the UN has also crafted into more usable tools. There's a robot threshold test, for example, that serves exactly the purpose that you point to. What is hate speech? What is um, in, incitement? Versus what is free speech? How do you draw that line? Well, the UN has developed a six-part, one-page test where you can look at the key issues there. You can look at the context, look at the power of the speaker, look at the intent, look at the nature of the language, um, and other other factors, and importantly, the, the content. So there are tools that are out there, and I think the other important thing to stress, and going back to Daniel's point that Facebook has however many thousands of content moderators, you'll never have enough you can never have enough to moderate every piece of content. But what you can do is have states say, okay, you know, we can't, we can't judge through a legal process, certainly. Every piece of content, every Trump speech or every you know, other speech that goes under the radar screen. But we can oblige companies to be more transparent about the processes that they're using. They need to be clear that the rules are based on international human rights. They're based on freedom of expression, on your right to privacy, that they're transparent, that they're clear, they're established ahead of time. And when they're violated, that users, be they Trump or be they you you and I, that we have a possibility to challenge that, to appeal, and that the company will provide us with some kind of remedy if, in fact, we've been been wronged. So I think it's really about trying to regulate the, the process and pushing on transparency than the companies, rather than trying to make a judgment on every every piece of content that uh, obviously is in the billions every every day. 
See, I see that as actually quite a good and very reasonable solution. I mean, you're coming from the position of the almost the moral high ground, if you like, of UN human rights. You know what a violation is. You understand the law. Danny, do you see that as, as a good solution, a kind of toolkit checklist for social media companies that will help reinforce their, their guidelines and their screening? I mean, in principle, yes. But I would ask, Scott, don't companies have immunity from liability? I mean, how do you get around that problem? They, they don't uh, for, for everything. And I guess it's important to distinguish sort of two broad types of content. And one is, no, they do not have uh, immunity from stuff that's illegal, from child pornography or promoting terrorist content that is clearly defined as uh, as such. There's illegal stuff, and no, they're not immune from that in the United States. For example, Section 230 does not give them immunity for that kind of stuff. It's all the other stuff that may be awful and harmful, and you know that in, indeed um, is the is the is the tricky area. What's you know interesting is to see there is some some buy-in from companies. They're starting to slowly realize the value of using human rights as a as a tool as a reference point in developing their their own guidelines and you know Facebook for example has developed a, a 2 minute video that explains what is this robot threshold test that is goes exactly to determining what is incitement to violence and that is illegal under international law and and governments have an obligation to prohibit certain kinds of of speech based on international law and that rather simple test that I I described. States have an obligation to prohibit that and companies have a responsibility to take action, whether it's to remove it or whether it's to filter it, whether it's to label it, somehow demote it so it um, isn't seen by by some audiences. Shalini, do you think that's enough? I mean, we started this discussion, you you suggested the, the, the boat on, on regulation had been missed a good 25 years ago, possibly because we just could not foresee what this beast would become. But now that we know what it has become, I don't think it's too late uh, uh, to uh, break up some of those monopolies. I think historically, of course, we could say that there really is a disjuncture between democracy and technology, big tech of this kind, because democracy needs plurality, informed citizens, uh, compromises, and a slow deliberative process of decision-making. This kind of technology moves extremely fast. It's supposed to be decentralized. It's not supposed to be hierarchical unless it's monopolized in this form. But the Internet itself, of course, has features, technological features, which are actually quite the opposite of democratic forms of governance. So there is a misfit, if you like, between the two. And the Internet is something which is global, whereas democracy and democratic forms are nation state bound. So there is a problem about at what level to govern, how to govern this technology is one problem. The other major problem with this data is surveillance. And that's why we need regulation as well. Because the surveillance based on the content of all the monitoring of my activities makes it very, very easy for companies who are working together with governments and authoritarian governments to be able to uh, monitor and survey their uh, citizens. So I think there are all kinds of dangers for democracy in this. And to come back to our very first uh, point under our discussion, it is deliberately manipulating voter preferences and skewing election results. Even the Brexit would be Brexit would be a great example of the way in which micro-targeting really skewed the result. Can I bring in my own personal 
axe to grind about this. We were talking about democracy as well as human rights in this program, is that I'm a journalist and we see the advertising revenue that some media used to, and and reputable, shall we say, journalistic outlets used to rely on, is flowing to social media. They get upwards of 80% of it. We know that the space and remuneration for professional journalists is shrinking all the time. And social media and the way that it will allow anything almost to look like news is helping that. That worries me a lot. Danny, you've got your hand up. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems we don't have time to discuss is the question of legitimacy. I mean, you know, a government is still recognized government. It's still legitimate, more so than Facebook, Twitter, or anyone else. And the question of legitimacy of social media seems to me has not been attacked. Uh, and I think someone like Zuckerberg becomes more important than certain heads of state. On what basis does he have that power except money and technology? Scott, do you have anything to come in there? I mean, it does worry me that via social media, the term mainstream media has become a dirty word. Well, I think, you know, that that leads back just to maybe one of the pieces of the the Australia Facebook puzzle that um, wasn't highlighted enough, as there was so much attention, I think, on sort of the giants that we're, we're battling, right? And the big companies saying, wait, we're not going to pay for, pay to have your, your news feed on our site. And news companies saying, well, wait a minute, we're not, we shouldn't be providing this service to you for free. And what was lost, I think, were a lot of, well, the elephants were fighting, right? The mice were getting trampled. And what about independent journalists? What about NGOs and civil society that were also shut down? Had their Facebook pages suspended? What about you know police and health service providers and others whose services were also suspended? It goes to your your point, I think, of the dangers of having so much untethered power in the hands of the unelected. Just to circle to Daniel's point, and that's that's exactly right. And these corporations indeed do have a comparable or sometimes a higher you know economic capacity than than member states of the United Nations, and political influence, of course, goes along with that. What I would, I guess, just harken back to is these corporations do have responsibilities that are recognized under international law. They do have human rights responsibilities that they, many of them profess to adhere to and are making, I think, good faith efforts to do, but there are a lot of gaps there. There's a lot a lot to be done. And we're not, unfortunately, going to get to a, a final idea of how that might be done in this program. But I would like one final comment from each of you before we go, because it's a genie that we're all rather fond of. Most of us can't really imagine our lives without big tech, but it's a genie that maybe needs to go halfway back in its box. Shalini, I'm going to come to you first because I know you have to run. Um, Do you think the existing rules, norms, international principles are enough or do we need something more? I want to shift the discussion to one other point here. I think in the Australian case, the jury was out on whether this is a good law or a bad one. But there was a third option, which was discussed by many in Australia saying, maybe this is for the best. It's time to abandon Facebook. Why do we need to give Facebook so much power? Because we do it partly as consumers. So part of the story for me is to say, actually, I am a non-consumer of both Twitter and Facebook. So I think Uh, We as consumers have 
also a certain amount of power, not just the um, governments, by saying we will not splash our own lives all over uh, uh, Facebook, that we will not use Facebook, for example, to get our news. Uh, We may want to use Facebook to chat with friends and families scattered all over the globe, but I'll subscribe to newspapers and I will not get my news from Facebook. So I think we are forgetting that there is a constituency out there which has managed to put a lot of pressure, for example, when it comes to labor standards with regards to the clothes we wear, or it has put pressure on the kinds of uh, wood that we use, on the certification of many things which should be without child labor or environment friendly. I think we as consumers also have part of that power in our hands. Danny, final thoughts from you? I wanted to quote uh, the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, Uh, when she said, to address hate speech, we need more speech, not less. Uh, And I think that intelligent, rational people uh, understand what we should be listening to, just as I agree with Cellini that we should have legitimate sources of news and not other places. I also say that I have neither a Twitter nor a Facebook account, so we agree on that also, Cellini. Scott, I think we needed somebody under 25 on this panel, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> Very true. We're all the wrong generation. <laughs> um Final yeah, thought. Final thought. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I would just circle back to, to where we started and saying, I think the euphoria over new technology, over digital tech and what it could bring to our lives and how it could advance freedom of expression and access to information and education and assist in, in you know, rebalancing economic disparities in the world. All that potential, I think, is still there along with all of the risks. And what I think we really need to focus on is how do we how do we address those risks? How do we regulate so those harms are taken in taken into account so that we can fully benefit from these new technologies and have a space on the internet that really is is free and accessible to all. And and getting there is extremely tricky. And I think you know we've touched on that and the dangers and the realities that we've seen around the globe of authoritarian regimes taking the issue of, oh, there's too much hate speech online, we need to ban hate speech. And, oh, there's there are cybersecurity threats here, we need to have new legislation to protect national security. Those threats are real and, and they're very frightening because that is happening and at a quick pace. But I think we also just need to not you know overly despair and throw our arms up and say, well, look, there is an international order out there with a framework that has been established that can be pulled in to guide both companies and states to step up. Well, that a really interesting discussion. I'm afraid we could talk for days, weeks, probably months about this, but we are at the end of the program. Thank you very much, Shalini Randaria, Scott Campbell, and of course, Daniel Warner, and to all of you for listening. This has been Inside Geneva. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening.
discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.